Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show, and man, are we in for a treat today. This week we are looking at ESG investing, environment, social, corporate governance. We've got a special guest to help walk us through some very specific lenses on this. In fact, this is such a big area, it's a third of global assets under management and now under an ESG mandate. What does my guest know about it? Quite a bit. He happens to manage $7 billion with an ESG mandate in the marketplace. Plenty to take out of the show. I'm looking forward to hosting you. See you on the other side. Hey there, guys. Welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. As you'll see this week, not Mitchell Orenchel, but I have got a special guest. Very proud and pleased to have James Harwood joining us on the Money and Investing Podcast today. How are you doing, James? Really good. Thanks, Andrew. Bit of background for our, uh, our followers. Um, we originally started working together in London, I think way back in the early 1990s. I think uh, between uh, here and then, we've both lost a little bit of hair and I think we've probably gained a few kids too. I think seven uh, as we stand between us. So much has happened in that uh, period of time, but great to have you on the show. And uh, um, the purpose of what we're gonna talk about today, obviously it's a huge uh, topic that's out there in the investing world, ESG, yeah, uh, environmental, socially aware, government type investing, definitely your bread and butter. Tell us a bit about where you sit in that space. What's your gig? What do you do? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, well, I, I'm at Russell Investments. Uh, I'm managing a number of equity funds in the ESG space. Uh, started my foray in ESG investing started with uh, our ETF, RARI, which is an ESG ETF listed on the ASX. Uh, and for the last five, six years, I've also been running a number of uh, global low carbon funds. So low carbon investing in the global equity space. And that's been another really big theme that we've seen develop over the last few years. So to give uh, give our followers a bit of a quantum to work on, what sort of assets under management have you got your paws on these days, buddy? Uh, so in the ESG space, it's I think it's just under three billion Aussie dollars now, um, and that's kind of split fairly equally between Aussie and global equities, um, and, and still managing money as well. That's that's not specifically ESG um, strategies. Uh, that's probably the same again, and um, yeah, around seven seven billion in total. Sort of rolls off the tongue rather well, and uh, and uh, a testimony to your uh, your track record and performance in this industry. Now, I mean, you come with a great reputation, so we're grateful to have you on the show today. So, let's dive in a little bit deeper and talk in the broad sense. Uh, how would, if you're talking to a layperson, maybe not somebody that you'd be dealing with at the level that you play, but your average person that was considering investing in the stock market, how would you describe ESG investing and what it is? Yeah, I think ESG investing is really all about um, where where assets are invested, but but in a in a responsible manner, where you're also looking to to measure uh, the performance of of a particular fund on certain ESG characteristics. So, uh, I obviously mentioned uh, low carbon strategies. Uh, a classic metric there is is the carbon intensity of the portfolio that I'm running versus say a uh, a market benchmark like MSCI World, uh, and we're, we're looking to see, you know, what kind of level of carbon reduction we can get uh, in that portfolio relative to the benchmark. So that that's a that's you know a, a good way of uh, thinking about it. And obviously carbon, huge thing, particularly for us here in Australia, we're obviously tied into global protocols, Kyoto, amongst other things. Yet we're also, you know, such a substantial exporter of coal. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's all, always really important to be aware, you know, we, we are uh, a mining heavy um, country, 
the material sector is about 20% of the Aussie market. So that, that's way bigger than what it is in, in global markets. And, you know, I think it's it's about trying to strike the balance right. Um, you know, I definitely don't think ESG investing is all about, you know, excluding uh, all investments from mining. It's too big a economy to, to ignore. And, um, you know, more recently we've seen, you know, just how important that, um, you know, that sector is to, to our economy. You know, iron ore is, is, is not necessarily a carbon intensive uh, industry like some of the fossil fuel industries. And, and, and it's really the fossil fuel kind of area that's, that's of most focus, I think, when it comes to, you know, Paris agreements. And we're a couple of months away from the, from the next climate meeting in, in Glasgow. Mm. It's uh, no question about it. It's, uh, it. it's changed massively. And again, if I go back to, to our early days in our career, way back in London, and we'll leave the name out of the investment manager, but uh, you know, back then, uh, Evergreen, I think, was one of the trusts that that particular company run, which back then was embryonic in terms of um, environmentally aware kind of investing, and, and quite frankly, was quite a tricky space to operate in. It was a very marginal minority type product. You know, your mungo being hemp clog wearing uh, marginal people that like hugging trees, or at least that's the misperception at the time. Whereas environmental investing now is is front and center, it is mainstream, and it's probably been one of the strongest performing areas in market. So not only from a conscience perspective, it's also been an incredibly profitable area for those people with uh, with skills like yourself. Yeah, look, I think uh, five years ago, and, and so much has changed since since I've really been in, involved with with ESG investing. You know, definitely six, you know, five years ago, um, people regarded ESG investing as forgoing investment performance, or you you know you you invested in these strategies, but but expected to to have lower returns. Um, that's no longer the expectation. I think most um, most portfolio managers um, are, are investing in companies that that have good governance. So you know score well on the on the G side of ESG. Um, that's really important to, to to kind of drive long term quality returns from from an investment. And you know I think. A lot of um, ESG strategies. It's worth being aware of some of the the biases within those strategies. So um, I mentioned fossil fuels. Um, yeah, a lot of ESG based investments don't have that exposure or don't have a lot of mining exposure. Um, until until very recently, that that actually was a real uh, tailwind to to performance. Um, but I think you know what, what we've seen more recently is you know some of the you know, the energy stocks bouncing back. Um, you know, since probably in the in the last year or so, since we've started to 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 see a a different kind of market um, since the vaccines have been out, and you know, certainly one thing that we talk about a lot at Russell is is just how how the vaccines have have changed markets, and you know, it, it's it's really all about the the reopening trade, and I think that's that's um, you know, particularly important at the moment as as we're all getting vaccinated and um, you know getting close to to key key kind of metrics for, 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 for different states to reopen. Hmm. I think it's, uh, you're right when you talk about the sort of biases within the you know, corporate governance in particular um, has continued to move further and further to the sort of foreground of the investing landscape with obviously there are those companies that are very, very good uh, at managing that and demonstrating good character through their visions and values and actually living by them. 
And I suppose in the shadows, there are those that from a, a corporate governance perspective have perhaps struggled uh, in terms of sort of staying in the white light. I'm thinking ASX specifically, maybe Crown Casinos would be an example where you know, the level of corporate governance has been you know, quite short of the mark as far as the market's concerned. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been a, a journey for some and, and there's definitely a number of, um, you know, bad examples of governance. You know, Rio Tinto was was um, with a junk and gorge controversy and um, AMP have had their own uh, controversies as, as well around, um, you know, just uh, diversity on boards, etc. So um, it, it really covers a lot of lot of different areas. I think. Um, just one thing it's worth being aware of is is just the amount of um, investor bodies that that are involved with ESG now. So um, some of your listeners will no doubt have heard about the the uh, United Nations Principles of Responsible Investing or the UNPRI. So so that that organisation was was established in two thousand and nine. Um, but what we've what we've got here in Australia is is a lot of active ownership. So a lot of different groups. Um, trying to influence corporate behaviour to, to have better ESG practices. And, um, you know, what, what we definitely know is that, you know, having these industry bodies is a really um, constructive way of, 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 you know, actioning change in terms of, you know, getting, you know, companies to do the right thing. So really trying to act collectively to, to, to influence behaviour. And I think, you know, we've, we've also seen business models changing, haven't we? You know, the... I know we spoke the other day about um, BHP and Woodside, um, you know, BHP demerging uh, its oil and gas business into uh, to, to, to partner up with with Woodside. So there's a, a huge amount of um, change that's going on mm. um, as a result of some of these kind of ESG trends in the market. I think BHP is a perfect example insofar as, you know, from a corporate governance perspective, you've had, you know, uh, quite a dynasty of extremely robust corporate management on a balance sheet basis, but also in terms of the corporate leadership side of things, you know, stepping back through probably three or four CEOs now. And if you look at the various spin-offs that BHP has engaged in over the years with S32 uh, and Bluescope both being off its balance sheet and standalone, it's really done probably more than anyone in that mining space to, to, to keep a very lean core business, albeit a bemoth one. Yeah, look, it's a like you say, it's a fascinating company. You know, just you know, Blue Scope is uh, you know, it's, it's one of the shining lights of the market this year. Uh, you know, steel and and I think I mentioned the reopening trade that's been um, really supportive of uh, you know cyclical stocks like like Blue Scope. Um, and and yeah, I think the, there's there's more to come though. I think the, the yeah, yes, BHP has has um, has done this. Rio has has also exited thermal coal. So thermal coal is generally regarded as the, you know, or it, it is the, the most dirty of um, all kind of energy production. So it, it releases the most carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, and I think these these companies are, are going to continually change and adapt their business models for a, uh, for a world that's going to be lower carbon in the future. So yeah, I think expect to see you know, a lot more change in action like, like we have been seeing. It's, um, it, and I guess it's a better world as a parent um, when you think about what we're leaving for our kids behind, not that we want to get too morose or morbid, I think we're far too young for that conversation, but, uh, you know, when you think of the world that we leave behind, if we're able to move the needle in the right way, uh, environmentally particularly, that has to be, uh, has to be a good thing. 
I saw a statistic uh, the other day, uh, talked about the growth of um, ESG in terms of the quantum, and it quoted one third of assets under management now uh, are, are being managed under a form of ESG mandate. I mean, that's just a staggering figure. Yeah, and I, th- I think it then comes on to the, the conversation of greenwashing, though, as well. And, and you know, what are, um, you know, are all these assets doing doing good in the way they invest? I think we can, can you, pretty... Sorry to cut you off, James. Could, what, what exactly, could you just define through your lenses how you define greenwashing for our Yeah, sure. Sorry, sorry, Andrew. Yeah, so, so greenwashing is basically the, the overstating uh, of an investment's ESG credentials. So, you know, when, when if a... If a, a, an asset is suggesting, or sorry, a fund is suggesting it's it's ESG, um, what is it really doing? So you know how can you know, how can that particular manager say that it that it has strong ESG credentials? And um, I think that's where um, I know right at the start of our talk today, uh, I mentioned about you know metrics to, to to measure funds. I think that's really important for for investors because there is a lot of marketing material that's out there. Um, that's probably claiming a lot of funds are, you know, ESG type vehicles, but I think the reality is that's not the case. Um, there's there's um, probably a smaller subset of, of funds that will deliver true ESG objectives. So I think it's a case of what are the objectives of, of a fund? Um, we talk about that quite a lot at, at Russell, you know, so what are we trying to achieve from this, this particular portfolio? Um, and, and then trying to give investors clear and concise metrics so that they can see, you know, what's what's the level of ESG improvement of this particular fund, or you know, how much lower carbon is that fund versus a standard market benchmark? And I think, you know, the clear labeling of products is is um, going to become increasingly scrutinized. It's already be- becoming increasingly scrutinized by regulators, and I think you can expect to see, you know, more of that. You know, just just given how popular ESG has become. Yeah, you know, we, we need better education for for investors ultimately. Mm. It's you can understand from a sales and marketing perspective, it's a beautiful banner to sort of stand underneath. Um, on that subject of, of greenwashing, and I apologise in advance for putting you on the spot, but you're a sharp man, so I'm sure you'll uh, dispatch this one over the boundary of one balance. In your experience, maybe over the last couple of years, what's what's been the single worst example that you can think of where there's been a, a yeah a prima facie greenwashing example where someone's just had a, a crack at doing nothing but putting it under the wrong banner. Yeah, look, I've got a, a good example, Andrew. I, I always think about this whenever people talk about this subject. And it was when we launched our ETF RARI. So that was April 2015. And there was another provider that, that launched an ETF. So, you know, it was we were trying to become the first ESG ETF on the ASX. So this, uh, ETF, is, this ETF is called RARI? Rari, yeah, T R A R I. Is so that a reflection of your uh, predilection for fast cars, my friend? <laughs> uh, I wish I could afford one, Andrew, but um, <laughs> no, and it's it's also probably not the the greenest the greenest way to get around. But um, uh, but yes, yeah, certainly do like the cars. But uh, no, so basically, we we launched Rari April 2015. I think the month earlier there was another provider that came out with a an ESG ETF. Um, that ETF was an Australian shares ETF that was ex-tobacco and ex-controversial weapons. And by that, I mean, it doesn't invest in tobacco or controversial weapons. Um, the reality, sorry, the reality is that we don't have any tobacco or controversial we- weapons stocks in the Australian share market. So 
it was basically a, an expensive tracker fund that um, did absolutely nothing, claimed it was an ETS, sorry, an ESG based investment. Um, and really was was misleading, I think, for for investors in terms of what they were getting. So um, it's a real bugbear of mine that that um, uh, so exclusions is a big big part of ESG investing. So you know, trying to you know exclude um, you know the sin stocks, let's let's call them you know the, the classic sin stocks that that are often excluded. Um, but I think there's there's often you know, products that claim that they're excluding various industries that actually don't apply to the market they um, they invest in. So so for us for Australia, it's really uh, alcohol, gambling and fossil fuels. They're the three key kind of areas of um, ESG that, that tend to get excluded from portfolios. Mm-hmm. On that note, and I, I guess, you know, a lot of investors that are, that are particularly in direct shares versus managed products have got their watch list of or, or go-to list of stocks that they they like to invest, and I guess the composition of companies can change over time. You know, just looking at Woolworths and its divestment from Endeavor, um, talk us a little bit through there because I guess it takes Woolworths from being in a, a marginal space from an ESG perspective to to something that's a justifiable inclusion. Yeah, look, Andrew, that's an incredibly topical one actually because um, in the ETF that I mentioned, Rari, um, we've just um, made Woolworths an eligible investment and it's likely to go into the ETF um, at the end of the month. Um, and that's because, as you say, they've um, de- demerged Endeavor Group. Um, most, most. Um, so so uh, for the benefit of those that aren't across Endeavor, if I may, so that, that, that would include their, um, their alcohol distribution business, Dan Murphy's and the like. That's right. That's right. So I think um, before the demerger, um, that the alcohol business was around 15% of, of Woolworths revenues. Um, a lot of ESG investments use a revenue threshold to, to, to determine what's a significant part of the business. So, and often that, that revenue threshold is 10%. So, you know, um, the, you know, the, the Dan Murphy's type businesses of, of the old Woolworths was, was meant that it was excluded from certain um, ESG strategies. Now that Endeavor is a, a separate listed company, Woolworths is a kind of a pure play grocer. Um, it then becomes a, an eligible investment, and it, it you know we might even see the same type of thing with BHP uh, next year for for certain ESG funds. You know, I know BHP has a long a long history, but you know it, it will be basically out out of um, fossil fuels um, this time next year. Um, a new capital structure, and it'll be the biggest biggest stock in our in our index again because because all of the uk listings is coming back to australia so i think that's going to be a really interesting play for for 2022 Mm. as we look ahead um for somebody that's a retail investor and perhaps they're mulling over wanting to take a greener approach to their investing what, what sort of advice would you give them in terms of how do you go about building a screen is it just simply hitting the books and understanding the mechanics of the business or are there other things that you can use to, to perhaps assist? Yeah, look, we have this kind of conversation quite a lot with financial advisors. And um, I think the first thing to understand for any investor, you know, whether you're a financial advisor or uh, an individual is, you know, what are your values and, and, you know, what, what do you want out of your, your investments? Um, I often point um, individuals to the, the RIA website. So this is the, 
responsible in investments of uh, Australasia, so RIAA, um, and, and that's a really good independent um, resource that um, investors can look at. Um, there's a product certification um, tool that you can find particular ESG-based products that, that match your, your kind of ESG values. And, and then it, it also allows investors to, to screen for, um, you know, what, what they want to avoid. So, you know, those sin kind of industries that, that I men mentioned, and also what, what characteristics that you want to have more exposure to, you know, so it's not just about, you know, excluding, it should be about, you know, positioning for the future. So, you know, investing in companies that have got good environmental characteristics or they're providing education or healthcare, you know, these are the types of sectors that, that a lot of people are looking for more exposure to. Hmm. Well, it's a, a greener looking future for sure. Uh, and if the growth trajectory that we've been on over the last decade is anything to go on, how, how do you see the growth in the ESG space over the next sort of five to 10 years? Look, you know, I, I think most, most, People would think it's it's for sure it's already mainstream, but but that's only going to continue. I think um, what we'll probably find is um, more metrics and and um, ESG characteristics to, to to help investors understand you know what what a particular fund offers them. Um, but you know without a doubt, you know this is this is what um, uh, investors are expecting or our clients are expecting and. There's a lot of pressure on, you know, asset owners to 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 do do the right thing as well. And uh, I think I mentioned, you know, the industry bodies. Um, you know, there's a, you know, a number of them in in Australia. Um, we have quite a powerful voice given the size of our superannuation money here. And um, you know, I think a lot of uh, you know a lot of initiatives have, have actually been led out of Australia, despite us being a relatively um, small country by. Um, uh, GDP um, relative to other world markets, we've, we've certainly been a, a much greater um, thought leader in this than, than say the United States. It's uh, it's a fascinating space, and it, as I say, you know, it, it, it's obviously grown considerably. Um, activist investing, you know, I've, I've not been to too many AGMs. I don't know if you uh, get. I guess these days they're virtual too, so it's not quite the go to the ballroom and listen to it all get uh, rattled off, but. Uh, you, know, you sort of think back in the day, you'd have a few activist investors at an AGM sort of hijacking it. And, 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 and now you think that's almost certainly the majority of people in the room. That's how much of a seismic change that there's been over the last handful of years. Amazing. Yeah, look, I think the best example there, Andrew, is, is ExxonMobil and um, Engine Number One, who, who are an active activist investor in, in the US. Um, and, and maybe comes to a good point that they invested in Exxon not because they wanted exposure to oil and gas. They actually wanted to change the business model of Exxon. So, you know, fairly recently, you know, their efforts. So, so say engine number one is is the uh, investor I'm referring to here. Um, they've managed to get some seats on the Exxon board, um, and uh, that was, I think, with a, about a fifty to hundred million dollar stake in the company. So, not a not a big percentage of the company. Um, but um, again, this is the kind of uh, trend that we are seeing, and, and particularly in you know focus industries like you know the oil and gas industry. You know we know that that has to change a lot. Uh, you know if, if the world is to decarbonize, and um, you know I think there's a lot of um, vested interest in in kind of 
you know, boardrooms and um, you know, without you know, significant change in the makeup of, of those boardrooms, you, you're not necessarily going to get the, the kind of speed of change that that, that you would need. And um, I think it, you know, to, to BHP's credit, I think definitely BHP um, has, you know, ha has taken a lot more uh, initiatives than certainly, you know, some of their kind of similar companies in, over in the US. There you have it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's great to get a look through the lenses from the rarefied atmosphere of managing 7 billion uh, into this space. It's such a serious space, such a great growth opportunity. If we can, as we get towards the back end of our time together, mate, um, one of the things that we like to do, and I apologize in advance for putting you on the spot, but again, you're a sharp man, so I'd say you dispatch these pretty easily. One of the things we like to do with our guests is a section we call rapid fire. I've got a couple of quick questions for you here and uh, we will get underway. So what's the best advice you think you've received personally in life or about investing? Probably to to take risks over the long term, because uh, I think there's probably no um, no more time like now, given given where interest rates are. So you know you're not going to be um, able to create wealth if you don't take risk. So um, you know, I think trying to understand the risks you're taking, um, but but doing so in a you know a considered way. That that's that would be my kind of mantra, I guess. Yeah, you live and breathe that. I know that for sure over the years to seen that come to the fore. Um, okay, we talked a bit about um, Carlin. A um, bit of a trickier question here. Uh, in terms of the garage, petrol, diesel or hybrid, what's in your house? Uh, probably not the greenest at this stage. Um, that's part, partly because I'm also a value investor, Andrew. So, you know, I don't <laughs> think electric vehicles are really at the price point. Um, and perhaps the technology where I'd be buying one just yet um so yeah we've got a diesel and a, a and a petrol vehicle in our garage yeah well you, you get on the push here a fair bit mine don't you and you've got your scooter as well so you you do your bit i'll give you that um okay another one for you investment styles it's all great what we do uh, for a living what do we do personally um property shares and crypto any one of the three all of the three where do you sit on those uh well i guess in in terms of wealth creation kind of Addressing my previous comment, um, property is the the area that I've made the most out out of over my lifetime. So, you know, I think it's it's um it's obviously a great investment. It's a an investment that um, many Australians love. It's you know it's it's part of our DNA, I guess. Um, so I think the leverage that you get from real estate investing is is what helps, obviously, with with that um, wealth creation and really all it, it's all about making sure that you buy at the right price and that's something that I um, love to love to try and find you know something that's a, a decent value play I think admittedly it's quite difficult in this this property market I think things things have gone a little bonkers just recently with with interest rates being as low as they are but um yeah I think where where share markets are at um, that would be where I where I'd rest and frankly I don't really understand crypto so um, I, I wouldn't put a lot of money in something that I, I just don't understand. Good call. Okay, final one. And obviously being a father, two beautiful boys, Ollie and Charlie, hope they're well. Um, what advice, you sit them down, you're talking about the investment landscape now, so they're sort of just about to kick into their, probably getting close to teenage years now. Um, what advice are you giving them in terms of the game of money and investing? Look, probably not that exciting advice, Andrew, but I think just be disciplined. You know, I think, um, you know, we've, we've all, you know, we've all learned over the years about, you know, the dollar cost averaging type type uh, approach to investing. So, you know, 
being regular with your investments you know that don't it's always very difficult to to call the top or the bottom of any any market but if you keep investing regularly um that's ultimately ultimately the best way to to have a kind of a long-term success um in whatever you do basically so yeah but but just just be consistent and disciplined awesome well on that note my friend uh it's been a fascinating insight into the world that you live in we're certainly very grateful for you creating the time uh, that you've carved out for us today and there's some brilliant insights there for our audience so on that note i'd just like to thank james harwood portfolio manager for russell investments people can find you i'm guessing on linkedin or on the russell site if uh, if they're looking to uh, well, place some dollars under your management i'm sure your financial planning and distribution team will be able to help them perfect that's great great to chat andrew thanks very much for your time james much appreciated there you have it guys make sure you give us a review and a rating and we'll see you on next week's show